you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Today we'll be hearkening back to the very beginning of our Bibles and God's work of creation, particularly that original relationship that God entered in with our first parent, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, 2, and 3. But we'll be reading right now from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, that's ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us again this morning. Now, if you turn back to your order of worship, we'll be confessing together question and answer six in our Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer six. Uh, this is part of Lord's Day three. I'll read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question six asks, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image. That is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might really know God, his creator, love him with all his heart and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Of course, this question answer is very much connected to Lord's Day 2, which we considered last week together. If you recall, last week we looked at that first function of the law of God in that it exposes our sin. It's a mirror, and we have no mediator originally. We look at the perfection of God's law, and we are utterly exposed, so much so that we learn that our reflection in that mirror of God's law is so bad that we are... uh, our natural inclination is to hate God and hate our neighbor. And so, question answer six asks a very logical question. If that is the case, if we look around ourselves and everyone has been tainted with this sin, these natural inclinations to go away from God, did God create us in this state? And, of course, the answer emphatically says no, and then harkens back to this very original state of creation when God entered into this relationship with our first parents, Adam and Eve, before the fall. And that is what this question and answer is speaking to, that relationship with Adam before the fall. And you'll notice that the catechism speaks and mentions a very important concept, image. God created man good and after his own image. It's what we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And that's part of what this original relationship that God had with our first parents. Adam was an image bearer of God. 
And this relationship, as we'll briefly dive into uh, looking at the particularities of this relationship, it's foundational to the gospel. If we don't really understand what question answer six is getting at, we're not fully going to understand and appreciate the gospel and why Jesus had to come into this world and do what he had to do. Live a life of righteousness, die on the cross, rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven. Sort of like if you build a building on a bad foundation, it doesn't really matter how great the building is. It's on a bad foundation. So we need, this is sort of the foundation of, of the gospel. Well, as I mentioned, this, this question and answer speaks right away to this idea of image. Now, before we can really dive in and to think about what it means for Adam to be created in the image of God, it, we do well to think about God's example. So if you're studying a, uh, the co- a copy of a famous art, uh, a piece of art, you do well to compare it to the original. And so we want to consider what the original is like. If man is an image bearer of God, what is the original like? And so let's briefly consider God's example in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are presented with a God who works. In fact, we're not given any abstract details about God's character. We learn about who God is through what he does, his work. And so what are some of the things that God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2? This isn't a trick question. (laughs) He's creating. What means does he employ to create? His word. Exactly. In fact, if you look in, in your Bibles in Genesis 1, you'll probably see in like verse 3, 6, 9, 11, your Bible's uh, indented with that phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said. Meaning that God creates through the means of his word. One thing that we see about God's word in Genesis 1 is that what he speaks directly corresponds with reality. That's the foundation of truth and, and, um, and uh, the, the ninth commandment, that we are to speak the truth, be honest. Well, what's the foundation of that? Well, it's rooting God's own character and example. Is when he speaks it, reality directly corresponds with his speech. But we also see in Genesis 1 and, and, and 2 as he's creating this generous and bountiful rule. He is exercising dominion as the sovereign king over all of creation. And he does so in a very generous and benevolent way. Now, for instance, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you are not presented with a, a creation of scarcity, but one in, that's abundant, that's overflowing, that's bursting at the seams, as it were. It's fruitful. Furthermore, he's a benevolent king and ruler as he even employs created beings in his rule over creation. Not only man, but even inanimate objects. The sun, the moon, the stars are employed to rule the day and the night. So we see that he's a benevolent ruler, generous ruler. So God works. He's presented as a working God in the first two chapters of our Bible. We also see that God judges that work. If you look at all six days of creation, every day ends with God's judgment of what he just got done creating. He declares it to be good six times. And then at the end of the sixth day, after he finishes all of his creation, he deems it to be very or exceedingly good. He doesn't just work, but he puts his own work 
uh, under scrutiny, and, and he tests it, and it passes his own standards. It passes his own, his own test, and it, it's deemed to be very good. So God works. He judges that work, and because it's judged to be exceedingly good, if you look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, we read that he enters into the seventh-day Sabbath rest. So he works, he judges that work, and because it's, it, it, it fits his standards, he enters into the seventh-day Sabbath rest. Now, of course, there's been much, much discussion and debate over creation days, the first six creation days, what should we should think about them. But one thing that's indisputable is that the seventh day is eternal. God is still in his seventh-day Sabbath rest. That's... The rest, he's currently there right now. One, one sense, that's the new creation we're looking forward to. That's heaven, the seventh day Sabbath rest. So God's example in Genesis 1 and 2 is one in which he works, he judges that work, and then he enters into the reward of his seventh day Sabbath rest. So based on what we can see about God in, in these first two chapters, what do you think it means for a man to be made in God's image, in the image of this God? Made to work. Made to work. Yes. So if you look at verse 26 of, of Genesis chapter 1, which we read, uh, we read, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion and then over all of creation. And that, word, that phrase, let them have dominion, the original language is a purpose clause. Let us make man in our image and likeness so that they might have dominion. So one of the purposes, one of the main aspects of bearing God's image is we have a task to do. We have to exercise dominion over his creation in a way that mirrors his dominion. Since Adam was God's representative here on earth. Genesis 2.15, the author explicitly says that Adam has work to do. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he's called to work in a way that mirrors God's work. And if, you, uh, if you're in chapter 2 and you go down a few verses, uh, verse 19, you see an example of this. Animal, the animals are brought to, to Adam and he, we read that he names these animals. Whatever Adam named the animals, that was its name. This direct correspondence between his speech and reality. Just like God spoke and reality came into existence, so too Adam spoke. And in a certain sense, reality came into existence as the animals then were given, given names. And so his dominion mirrored God's dominion. And the job description, the fuller job description of this work, is found in God's law. So last week we saw that Romans 2 says, every person has a law of God written upon their hearts by virtue of creation. And so it obviously is the case that Adam did too. And that law that was written upon his heart was sort of the job description for this dominion, this benevolent dominion he was called to exercise over all of creation. And so in our catechism, that's why it says that God created man good after his own image, that is in righteousness, true holiness, so that he might rightly know God as creator and love him with all his heart. 
part of being an image bearer of God was Adam was called to love the Lord his God with all of his heart as he exercised this loving and benevolent dominion over all of creation. He was called to use that righteousness and holiness, those attributes that God endowed him with, and to uh, use them properly as he sought to be God's representative here on earth. This is part of the reason then why work is so natural to us. It's hard to conceive of a fulfilled, satisfied life when there's absolutely zero work, nothing to engage oneself with. This is because we are image bearers of God. We are made in the image of a working God. And this work is uh, one of the most natural things to us as human beings. So part of being an image of God is, is working as God worked. But this work also comes under judgment, just like God's work comes under judgment. You know, one, one theologian said, has said that you know, creation began with a, a greater destiny lying before it. Uh, so prior to the fall, Adam and Eve, they weren't in, we sometimes speak of the garden as paradise, but it wasn't God's original plan for, for his people. Eden was sort of a trial. God's original destiny was beyond Eden. It, lied, it, was, it resided in that seventh-day Sabbath rest. And so those two trees that Adam and Eve would have known well were symbols. Sometimes they're referred to as sacraments because they point to something greater beyond themselves. Uh, the tree of life pointing to that reward, that seventh-day Sabbath rest, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is a place of testing, in some sense symbolized the curse of what would happen if Adam failed to do what he was called to do? Thus, Adam's work was going to come under judgment, meaning not necessarily in a negative sense, but it was going to be scrutinized. And he would either be given the reward or be cursed based on how faithful he did the work that God called him to do. Of course, we know what happened. We know that he failed. He was not able to properly discern the difference between good and evil. He succumbed to the uh, serpent's temptation. We saw he subverted the, the order of creation, as I said earlier. And God comes in, in curse. In Genesis chapter 3, verses, uh, um, uh, specifically chapter 3, verse 8, where God says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Now, oftentimes, we, it sounds very nice to our ears. God walking in the, in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. We think of a nice stroll through a garden in the summertime. But this really is the language of, of the judgment of curse. The voice or the sound of the Lord is the voice or sound of the Lord that we read about in Psalm 29 that terrifies creation. The, the, the reference to God walking is used in Jonah chapter 1 when Jonah's on the boat and the storm is, is, is raging and it literally says it's walking to and fro. God's coming, walking, raging in judgment. And then we see the, the language of the cool of the day is the, really the spirit of the day of judgment. Revelation 6 is that spirit of the day of the Lord when when people will be calling upon the rocks to crush them because they want to be uh, hidden from the, the wrath of the Lord. 
So this is not a pleasant verse. This is God coming in, in curse. So our first parents failed the test. Their, their work was judged and it failed. And they, as, long, as well with the, as, as the serpent, they were cursed. However, we do know that if, they would have, if Adam would have persevered, if he would have done his work as God himself called him uh, to do it, if he would have mirrored God's dominion, he would have entered God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. He also would have entered into this, this glorious period of, of reward and rest. That's what the tree of life symbolized. The tree of life was that, that, that thing that pointed them forward to reward. And of Revelation, all of the people of God will have the right once again to eat of that tree. So we see this even in our catechism. So if you, again, you look, at, think, uh, look to our catechism, it says that part of the image of God is that we are made with righteousness, holiness, to rightly know God our creator, to love him with all our heart. So that's the law of God written upon our heart, especially originally with Adam. He was called to exercise his benevolent rule and dominion as God himself exercised, exercised uh, rule and dominion over creation. But notice that last phrase. And live with God in eternal happiness, for his praise and glory. Adam wasn't in a state of eternal happiness because eternal happiness implies a state in which sin is impossible, where that happiness will be perpetual. There's no possibility of something coming in between that happiness and, and God. Well, Adam obviously lost it. So he didn't attain that eternal happiness. That eternal happiness is that seventh-day Sabbath rest that God himself entered into and that which God promised Adam in the beginning. So Adam was our representative. So we know throughout scripture, we sometimes hear the phrase, in Adam, because he failed, his performance is imputed to us. We then are conceived in sin because our first father failed. He was cursed and thus we partake of that curse. And so I labeled the, the topic of this sermon a covenant of works. So throughout um, our Reformed tradition and our history, we've referred to this original relationship as a covenant of works, implying the fact that Adam was called to work in a way that mirrored God's work. And he was offered two options, curse or reward based on his performance. And of course we know that he, he failed. Well, I mentioned that this, this is foundational to, to the gospel. Any ideas on how this relates to the work of, of Jesus? Jesus did the work that Adam couldn't do. Exactly. That's why in Genesis 3, you have this promise of the seed of the woman. Right away, if mankind is to be saved, a new Adam, a new mediator, substitute needs to come. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul describes Jesus as a second Adam. A second Adam, meaning he's come to do what this first Adam failed to do. He came to this earth, in one sense, as an image bearer of God, a servant of God, son of God, 
to love the Lord as God with all of his heart and to earn that, that blessed state of eternal happiness, not only for himself as a human being, but for all of the people of God. That's why in John chapter 5, Jesus says, chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says that he has come to this earth to do the works that his Father has given them, given him. What are those works? What's well, the works that the first Adam failed to do? The works that um, he's, every human being is called to do by virtue of being made in God's image. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus says that he has come to fulfill all righteousness. Adam was created in righteousness and holiness, but he failed to uh, live up to those attributes that the Lord had endowed him with. In Christ's work, this whole life of righteousness, obedience, the law of God, again, think of the wilderness temptation. The serpent was trying to do to the second Adam what he did to the first Adam, but it didn't work this time. So Christ came to do a work, but, and his work also came under judgment. So just as in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, God is coming and announcing curse, failure. Someone reading the announcements of, a, of, of, of an exam. You failed. Well, Christ's resurrection is God's announcement that the second Adam passed the test. So in Romans 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So just as Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 was that announcement that the first Adam failed the test, the resurrection was the announcement of God that the second Adam passed the test. In one sense, there are many people throughout history who died in Roman crucifixes. Many people who claimed outrageous things claim to be deities, and you have to wonder what makes Jesus different than all these other hundreds, even thousands of men. What's well, Romans 1 verse 4? He passed God's judgment. God looked upon his work and said, yes, this meets my standards, and you are the Son of God in power. You are the true and faithful second Adam. Then what does Christ do after he resurrects from the dead? Down. He sits down. An idea of sitting is symbolic. We don't necessarily have to think that there's a throne floating in heaven and Christ has been sitting literally for 2,000 years. It's symbolic language to indicate rest. Jesus has entered God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, the first human being to get there. The first Adam would have gotten there and, by extension, brought all of mankind with him, but he failed and so the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was the first human being to enter that seventh-day Sabbath rest, which is what we think of as eternal life, the new creation, heaven. And by faith, then, what happens is we are transferred from being under the first Adam to being under the second Adam. So those who who don't profess faith in Christ, we are in Adam, meaning Adam's performance has been imputed to us, credited to us, and that's our legal standing before God. And you add on top of that all of our actual sins and transgressions. 
But when we put our faith in Christ, then his performance becomes our performance, and thus we have a right to that reward which he has earned. That's why Paul can say that uh, we are, Ephesians 1, through the Spirit we have a down payment of that future inheritance. Even though we are not there right now, it's as sure as done, because Spirit, Christ has sent his Spirit as a, a guarantor, a, uh, a down payment of that new creation that we will one day enter into. And so if, you don't if we don't understand this, er this, this relationship between God and Adam originally, then we're not fully going to comprehend why Jesus had to come in the first place. Because Jesus' whole prerogative and mission was already detailed for Adam, and Jesus, as the second Adam, came to, to uh, do what he failed to do. That's when we start to see Scripture in terms of this lens of work, judgment, rest, we see that it really opens up the meaning of, of what Christ has accomplished for us. 